Hey, First Person listeners, it's Sarah Wildman. We're hearing the first episode of another podcast here on our feed because we think it's good and you'll enjoy it. It's made by the people at Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. It's hosted by Milan Revere. She was the first ever U.S. ambassador at large for global women's issues. The podcast is called Seeking Peace. So enjoy the episode and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of First Person on Friday, just like every week. From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is our very first episode. It's a new show where we introduce you to women who make peace possible. Today, we talk to an unlikely peace activist, Kristen Bell. Personally, I just believe a lot in grassroots change. I believe the people on the ground experiencing the problems oftentimes have the best ideas. I recently spoke to Kristen Bell about her new role off screen as the first global advocate for the United Nations Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund. But first, we bring you a story from the largest refugee camp in the world, where a group of women may be about to change the course of history. Journalist Susanna Savage and producer Brenna Daldorf traveled to the camps in southeast Bangladesh on the border with Myanmar, a place that hundreds of thousands of refugees now call home. Most of them are Rohingya Muslims that fled a brutal crackdown by the Myanmar army in the summer of 2017. They spoke with Rohingya women there who are making sure their voices are heard around the world. We're in the middle of a sprawling camp in a little shelter that belongs to a woman named Kalanisa. She's in her 40s, but she looks much older, except for her eyes, which are quick and youthful. She's bustling around the corner of her shelter, which serves as her kitchen. Kalanisa, like everyone else in the camp, is a Rohingya Muslim and a refugee. Back in 2017, she was living just across the border in Myanmar, in a place called Rakhine State, which is the traditional home of the Rohingya. She was working as a midwife and raising two sons alone after her husband died. It was a tough life. In part because the Rohingya have faced discrimination in Myanmar for decades. The country is majority Buddhist and has long persecuted this minority Muslim group, including denying them basic rights like education and citizenship. In 2017, it got much, much worse. Good evening. As Myanmar continues to deny it is ethnically cleansing Muslims from Rakhine State, the evidence against it continues to build. Myanmar is accused of conducting a state-sponsored campaign of ethnic cleansing against the Rohingya Muslims who live there. Villages were burned to the ground. Women were systematically raped. Thousands of people were killed. World's fastest-growing humanitarian crisis as thousands of Rohingya refugees... Many, many more were forced to flee the country. ...stranded near the border with Bangladesh. When the army came to Kalinisa's village, she grabbed her two young sons and fled. They ended up here in the camp. In her time living here, she's become a community leader. Every day, she walks from shelter to shelter to talk to other refugee women about what they're facing so she can report their problems to the NGOs that work in the camps. Today, we, along with two translators, are going to join her on her rounds. It's raining hard as we climb stairs cut into a muddy hill. 
At the top, we can see the camp for as far as the eye can see. Lots of mud and tiny little shelters with tarp roofs. There are thousands of them. We stop by one little shelter, and there's a woman living there, alone with her two-year-old son. So her husband died in Myanmar. The military killed her husband. She told us that her husband was shot by the Myanmar army as they were fleeing. She says that she's really struggling on her own. She has to carry the food on the way. No one helps her to bring the food from here, and it's really difficult for her. It's hard for her to gather firewood and carry water back with no one to care for her little boy. As we sit on the floor together, Kalinisa listens to her carefully. Kalinisa can't read or write, but she makes a mental note of everything the young woman says. So per day I visit 10 to 12 houses, and around one week I almost visit uh, 50 to 60 houses. Kalinisa spends her days fielding the problems and issues fellow refugees are facing. At another shelter, where 11 people are living, they tell her that there are no toilets nearby and that houses are getting flooded regularly. In the middle of all these temporary shelters, there is one solid structure with a pink flag outside. So we've just come into the women's space. There are lots of women and girls here, talking and laughing. Lots of babies too. Do you remember when you were here, when he was tiny? Yeah, hi. This is the women's friendly space, basically a safe space in the camp where women can gather. I'm just going to find out if they're having a meeting. Are, they, are you having a meeting? We all cram into a very hot room for this weekly meeting. This is when women leaders, like Kalinisa, report the issues that they've heard about in their communities. They face a lot of problems while going to the infirmary and the children here, they have to go far to attend schools. I'm living on top of the hill, so it's really difficult for me to go to the hospital. And they just want a hospital and a lady doctor near their area. One leader says that it isn't safe for women to be out after dark. There's a real fear of getting attacked by men. She says she's so afraid to go to the bathroom at night that she's developed a bladder issue. The women listen to each other's problems and offer reassurance. The women started meeting when they first arrived in the camp. At first it was informal. They just wanted to talk, talk about what happened in Myanmar, talk about their issues in the camp. It was therapeutic. Then some local aid workers took notice of these meetings and offered them a place at the women's centre. To encourage them, aid workers showed them videos of other women's groups across the world. Lenisa told me she was really inspired by those videos. She thought, if other women can be heard, why can't we too? Over time, the women started to think about what they could do to make their own voices heard. On International Women's Day, they organised a march in the camps. A peaceful protest to highlight what they went through in Myanmar. It's there that Kalinisa found her voice, by giving a speech. For Rohingya women who were raised in a very conservative tradition, this was really incredible. Traditionally, women aren't even allowed to raise their voices, let alone give speeches in public. And it was then that they named themselves the Shanti Mahila, or the Peace Women. As a group, they decided to petition the Bangladeshi Prime Minister. With help from aid workers, they eventually sent the Prime Minister a list of 12 demands, calling for better treatment for the Rohingya people. They asked for the right to return home to Myanmar, to be given citizenship. They also demanded justice for the wrongs done to them. To further their cause, the women of Shanti Mohila also decided to share their stories. 
Some of the most powerful testimonies came from Nur Jahan and her teenage daughter, Minara. Like Kalunisa, Nur Jahan is a community leader. She invited us to her shelter to talk about those testimonies. Okay, so we're going to Nur Jahan's place. Just as we got there, it started to pour with rain. The camp was rapidly turning into a sea of tan-colored mud. Her shelter was leaking. Nur Jahan lives in this dark and damp shelter with her two daughters. They say they're the only survivors of their entire family. It's hard to believe their change in circumstances. Back in Myanmar, they had a good life. Minara used to have fun, shopping with her friends, like teenagers everywhere. Then, in the summer of 2017, the Myanmar army attacked their village. Minara says she ran and hid in a rice paddy. She stayed there for days. When Minara was finally rescued, she learned that both her father and brother had been killed in the attack. Nurjahan survived, but she says a long scar on her stomach came from that day. Many people in the camp bear physical scars from Myanmar soldiers. Many of the women were raped. Nurjahan tells us about children being gang raped and about pregnant women being raped with bamboo sticks. Some are rumors, but she says she knew other victims personally. When I remember these kind of things, what happened with us in Myanmar, I cannot control myself. Even I don't know how how we can tolerate these things and more. If I tell you all the things what happened with us, you will die. You cannot control yourself. And at one point, she starts talking about revenge, about all the things she'd do to the people who hurt Rohingya girls and women, who hurt her and her family. I want to kill him cruelly and I'll chop him and I'll eat his meat, raw meat. It's just so clear that women like Nur Jahan experienced horrible things. It's also clear that the family hasn't been able to heal at all. Halfway across the globe, her testimony is being heard. Aidwork has compiled all of the testimonies given by the Shanti Mahila and passed them on to a human rights lawyer who's been figuring out if the women have a case against the government of Myanmar. This fall, I travelled to the Netherlands, to The Hague, where the women's testimonies are being processed at the International Criminal Court, the ICC. There I met with a human rights lawyer, Wayne Jordash, who took the Shanti Mahila's case. He first heard about them in 2018. At the time, he was already thinking about what was happening in Myanmar and wondering if it amounted to genocide. Well, genocide is a very specific crime uh, which requires a very specific intent. Even though we refer to genocide a lot, it's actually a legal term. And in court, it's something that's very hard to prove. In fact, there are very few cases that legally amount to genocide, which is strictly defined as the willful destruction of a group. After reading the testimonies, Jordash thought they might have a case. He wanted to include the stories of sexual violence even though, in the past, sexual violence hasn't been included in genocide cases. The men who were prosecuting and investigating these crimes were blindly prioritising other crimes above uh, gender-based violence and sexual violence because they were men and because they didn't understand. Jordash wanted to build his case on those accusations. If the case goes forward, this will be the first time a claim of genocide is based not just on murder, but also mass sexual violence. In the spring of 2018, he filed the case with the International Criminal Court. And then, he and the Shanti Mahila waited. It took months for the court to respond. But finally, in August of that year, the court decided to accept that there are grounds for the case to go forward. The government of Myanmar continues to maintain that they did not attack innocent people, that the violent crackdown specifically targeted what they call Rohingya extremists. 
There hasn't been independent verification of what happened because the government won't allow outside NGOs and most journalists to travel there. So if this process goes forward, it will be the first official investigation of genocide in Myanmar. But what comes next for the Shantimahila? That's still not clear. One of the things I noticed when I was there is that the women realised that this is something that is not going... They're not going to see the results of this necessarily. I mean, to what extent is this a long-term game? Yeah, international justice is a long game. I mean, that's the reality. And um, then you really are talking about processes which last and are measured in years and not uh, weeks or months. So, you know... the average length of a trial at the ICC is in the region of around eight to nine years. Eight or nine years is a long time when the Shantimahila are living the day-to-day struggles in the camp and dealing with their trauma. The Hague is 5,000 miles away from Kalinisa, Nurjahan and the others. Honestly, it feels worlds away. I think about what Kalinisa once told me, that this work was for the next generation. <laughs> Back when we were in the camp, going on rounds with Kalanisa, we made an important stop. She's beautiful. Oh, my God. She went to check on a baby that she'd delivered just a few hours earlier. So we go to see the mother, who's in the next room, resting on a mattress on the floor. We say congratulations, but being born into a refugee camp, especially as a girl, means your life won't be easy. Kalanisa has a big smile as she cradles the perfect little baby. We ask our translator, Nabila, to ask Kalanisa what she's thinking. She's happy and she's saying that that baby girl is going to be a member of Shanti Mahila. <laughs> and what does that mean for this baby's future? Shanti Mahila is She thinks her future will be beautiful. The Shanti Mohila are still waiting to hear if the International Criminal Court will allow their case to go forward. To see photos of some of the women Susanna Savage and Brenna Daldorf spoke to during their reporting trip, head to our website, giwps.georgetown.edu backslash seekingpeace. Actress Kristen Bell is best known for her roles in Veronica Mars, Frozen, and The Good Place. But if you follow Kristen on social media, you might know that her passions extend beyond acting. She is a committed activist and philanthropist. This year, Bell became the first global advocate for the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund. It's a partnership between the United Nations and grassroots women's organizations all around the world. I recently sat down with Kristen Bell to talk about her new role. You've been involved with many charities and projects, I know, in, like Invisible Children, uh, which brings visibility to the issues of child soldiers in Central Africa, to working uh, for people who are assisting with the homeless. What is it that attracts you to the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund? Well, I think... I have a soft spot for the underdog. I mean, all the organizations that I've supported, what they have in common is that they lift people up who 
otherwise might be ignored or um, feel insignificant. And, you know, with the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund, there are crises all over the world, whether it's, you know, war or conflict, humanitarian disasters or refugees fleeing persecution. But in every single one of those situations, there is often a woman standing nearby ready to help. We have irrefutable evidence that when women are included, it accelerates peace building, it improves humanitarian response, and it helps the economies of these countries that have been in conflict recover faster. But despite this, less than 1% of international aid to countries in crisis are given to women's organizations. And I just, I find that kind of unacceptable. I think women are more than 1% of the solution. So the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund was created to invest in women's untapped potentials, giving them the resources that they need to pull their own communities out of crisis. It really puts the the power in their hands um, and the support sort of comes from our hands with their ideas because they're the ones on the ground you know, mediating local disputes, which might otherwise turn violent. The women in these communities are facing crisis and they're doing vital grassroots work. And we're really going to them and saying, what do you need? We're giving them capacity training and, you know, going in and basically helping them organize and helping them with tech and giving them funding. And then with the hope that those ideas will become successful and we can franchise them out and women in other communities can... um, can create more peace. I mean, personally, I just believe a lot in grassroots change. I believe the people on the ground experiencing the problems oftentimes have the best ideas. How do you see this acting career, uh, which obviously you are very successful in, connecting to your humanitarian work? Is there a connection between the two? Some Sometimes it can be looked at when you have someone who's been in the film and television industry speaking for an organization that's actually done really tactile philanthropic work. It, it can seem a little um, vacant, and I don't um, – that is not my commitment here. This is not just a title. I want to be involved as much as I can where I can add, but I also n- recognize – the reality that my platform from film and television allows the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund to gather the eyes and ears of a demographic perhaps that they wouldn't capture. And I recognize that and I think that that is a responsibility I have because those are things that weigh on my heart. When I go to bed at night coming home from a day of shooting, I do think about how to be a better person and I do think about how to help my community and communities around the world just fight for goodness a little bit more. It's, you know, if I can have a 16-year-olds, 24-year-olds, 30-year-olds who don't know anything about philanthropy, liking my show The Good Place and following my Instagram account, and then I start Instagramming about these, you know, women in Bangladesh or Mm -hmm. the Rohingya crisis and say, Oh, this is a, a, you know, a top priority for me right now because people are suffering. Did you guys know about this? I mean, I'm... I was somehow given this crazy key to unlock doors that bring people together. And I do not underestimate what a responsibility that is. I know that you attended the um, United Nations General Assembly meeting this past September. Did you meet any of these women peace builders while you were there? 
I because did. this is a fairly new role for you, uh, becoming the global advocate. And I think that might have been one of your first experiences at the UN. It was. It was. And it was a... <laughs> It was it was an overwhelming and charming experience because everyone's gathering because they want something better and something more and to help. So that's inspiring. It's also overwhelming because there are a ton of people. And um, I was really lucky to have had firsthand contact with a couple of the women that the Women's Peace and Humanitarian has been actively supporting. Maria Jimena from Colombia and um, Marie Conquesa from Burundi. And they spoke. They're a part of local women's organizations um, that we support. And they were incredibly inspiring. I mean, Maria Jimena is from the area in Colombia where the FARC began. And for 50 Mm -hmm. years, you know, she shared about how her community was in conflict. She told me that the daily life for her and her neighbors was walking on trails and paths that had active minds and they were not able to move freely in their community. They had, uh, their access to food was restricted and the women in Colombia were historically, they've been frightened in silence and made invisible and abused. And she just, despite all of this, I mean, she never gave up hope. She has so many ideas and the peace agreement has given her and the women of Colombia a possibility to change their communities and their futures. And based on that opportunity, that's what the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund aims to help. We want her to have every ounce of support that she deserves to change her own community into a more peaceful one. So clearly she she was inspiring in every way um, and helping to move her country out of this terrible decades-old conflict. What can the fund now do? What is it trying to do? There's been a peace agreement Mm -hmm. uh, that's been forged, but we know that that's just the beginning, that it's a hard road to make sure that all the provisions of an agreement uh, become reality and that people's lives can become transformed. Yeah. So what what is the fund doing in Colombia? Well, in Colombia specifically, the work focuses on the territories most affected by the armed conflict, and it emphasizes support to the indigenous and Afro-Colombian women. We support 16 organizations that are anything from helping implement the peace agreement and making sure women are a part of that process, actively a part of that process, to helping women understand and participate in the political process for the first time, working to end the gender and sexual-based violence, helping women, you know, start businesses and learn job skills and gain access to things like savings and loans As it's been recovering from conflict, Colombia, it's just such a key time to advance women's rights across all aspects of society there. You know, uh, Kristen, I'm here listening to you and thinking about people who might ask themselves, there are so many challenges in the world today, so many challenges here at home. Why should we care about women in conflict areas? What difference does it make to us in our own lives? Well, we are a connected world. Conflict affects us all. I really believe that. I, you know, having become a mother five and a half years ago, I recognized every situation I saw, I felt like it was happening to my child, whether it was a good situation or a bad situation. 
even if you don't have those maternal feelings, you, you as a logical person, would recognize that conflict in the world affects our economy because um, it forces some people out of their homes. It creates environments ripe for human trafficking and drug production, which affects the whole world. It, it influences global human rights. It just creates an unstable world. And women are disproportionately affected by conflict. It hits them the hardest. And I think that's unfair and unacceptable. I think this is the time, the moment in history where we can't look away, where we actually have an opportunity to face it. And one important way we can do that is by standing with women peace builders and responders. And anyone who is supporting or donating to the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund, that's exactly what we're setting out to do. You had mentioned um, your daughter, Mm-hmm. And I understand that um, the school that she goes to uh, has an award called the Peace Builder Award. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, I have two daughters and one that's in school. And, you know, my I feel like my goal in life now is to create a world where where peace and equality are ubiquitous for them, where they don't they don't ever feel that challenge on their shoulders. Um at my daughter's school, um, they take social emotional learning and um, inclusion and diversity very seriously. And they have awards in the hallway called the Peace Builder. And there is a picture of the child and a little explanation. Um, I was a peace builder because I this week showed skills on the playground, helping people be involved in the kickball game and, um, you know, have a good attitude even if they lost. Or I stood, you know, they have examples in the hallway and it's always really sweet for the parents to walk by and see these examples of of, of children setting you know, beautiful, kind behavioral patterns. And it occurred to me earlier this year as I was dropping her off that that I'm currently learning how to be a peace builder through working with the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund. And she is simultaneously learning to be a peace builder as a five and a half year old girl in kindergarten. And that, that gave me such, I don't know, like a lightning bolt of hope that look how early this younger generation is starting to become familiar with the words peace builder and peacemaker and conflict resolution. And with the younger generation starting so early, I do feel like we will get to a point where peace and equality are ubiquitous in their in their lifetime. Well, that in and of itself is very inspiring. I uh, guess we all need to be peace builders. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you for having me. To learn more about the Women's Peace and Humanitarian Fund, check out WPHfund.org. Next time on Seeking Peace, I speak to one of the world's most influential female leaders and a woman I call a friend, Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and hard-listening media. This episode was made in conjunction with UN Women. Our associate producer is Ali Post. The show is edited by Ibi Caputo and sound designed by Sarah Curtis. Our production manager is Sarah Rutherford, and our executive producer is Kate Osborne. Original music composed by Allison Leighton-Brown. This show was made possible by the Compton Foundation. 
We are a new series, and if you liked what you heard, please share with your friends and family. And leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other people find us.